Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about new research that shows a link between a widely used chemical and Parkinson's disease, why where we live no longer determines who we love, and another reason cats rule. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. A chemical that has been used for 100 years for everything from dry cleaning to degreasing metal to decaffeinating coffee has now been linked to Parkinson's disease. So there's a chemical that can degrease metal and also take the caffeine out of coffee beans and it'll give you Parkinson's. This is insane. Yeah, it was also used as a general anesthetic. That's what makes this so alarming. Trichloroethylene, or TCE, has been around for a while. And it's one of those miracle solvents that we thought could do everything. Turns out it was too good to be true. In fact, it's already been linked to different types of cancer, miscarriages, congenital heart disease, and now Parkinson's. So they've stopped using it. No, it's still in industrial and commercial products like wood finishes, adhesives, paint, and stain removers, and stuff like that. An international team of researchers published a hypothesis paper in the Journal of Parkinson's Disease, citing links to the disease from exposure to the chemical. How do they establish these links? It sounds like TCE is pretty much everywhere, so wouldn't it be difficult to trace exposure? That's a great point, and you're right. TCE is all over the place. It's one of those chemicals that can easily make it into the soil and from there into the groundwater. It will rise to the surface of the soil and open water, and it can create massive water plumes. And what's worse, at low concentrations, it's basically undetectable. So it can be evaporating around you, and you wouldn't know it. That is mildly terrifying. Well, all that said, there are several locations in the United States where TCE levels are especially high, including 15 toxic Superfund sites and the Marine Corps base Camp Lejeune. And it's those locations that have given researchers the data they need to make these connections. And it's possible that it takes lots of exposure to have an impact. Okay, it sounds like good news. Well, not so fast. It's possible, but researchers just don't know for sure. That's why papers like this one are so important. The hypothesis paper included seven profiles of people with Parkinson's who likely had long exposure to TCE, including Brian Grant, a former NBA player who was diagnosed at age 36. His father was a Marine stationed at Camp Lejeune when Brian was just three years old. They profiled another woman named Amy Lindbergh. 30 years before her diagnosis, she served in the Navy. And was stationed at Camp Lejeune? Yeah. Now, it's important to note that seven examples do not prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's a link. And it's especially tough to prove a link with case studies like this because symptoms and a diagnosis usually happen decades after exposure. But in other studies over the years, it's been shown that TCE easily enters the brain and animals that have been subjected to high exposure have seen a loss of dopamine-producing nerve cells, which is a sign of Parkinson's in humans. So taken all together, the case studies, the lab research. Yeah, the evidence is pretty compelling. So what's next? The authors of the hypothesis paper say that first and foremost, we need more research on the effects of TCE. We need to know exactly how much of this stuff is in our water, our soil, and in the air around us. And we need to better understand how it affects our health. Having that information will help state and federal agencies make better decisions about the use of TCE. In fact, Minnesota and New York have already banned it. But globally, its use is actually still growing. Researchers say, basically, the more we know, the better off we'll be. Well, knowledge is power. That's why we're here. All right, which would you rather have? 
a high-quality partner who lives in some other city far, far away, or a partner who isn't totally up to your standards, but who lives just down the street. Is the podcast like a matchmaking service now? (laughs) Is that we shifted? Okay. It was just a hypothetical question because it turns out that the geography of relationships has been changing, and that could have a big impact on marriage, family, and where we choose to settle down. All right. What is the geography of relationships? Honestly, that's just a phrase I made up. Well, it's got a nice ring to it. Thank you. But it could easily be a real phrase because for the better part of a century, researchers have been interested in the role that location plays in how we choose our partners. I would guess location plays a big role. It plays a huge role. But before we talk about how that role is shifting today, let's go back to 1932. A study of 5,000 Philadelphians found that about 30% of marriages were between people who lived within four blocks of each other. Wow, four blocks? It gets better. Stretch that out to nine blocks and it jumps to 40%. And over 50% of marriages were between couples who lived within 20 blocks of each other. The study found that people who lived closer to each other were actually more likely to get married. Okay, okay. But 1932, not exactly the jet age. I know. People back then didn't travel as much. And they didn't have access to vast digital networks where they could just pick out anyone in the world to date. Coincidentally, they also got married at a younger age. First marriages for women, on average, happened at age 21 and age 24 for men. Today, that's about 28 for women and about 30 for men. Mm, And the younger you are, the less time you've probably spent away from home. Especially in 1932. And it's possible that marriages in those days were more about practical needs and less about, you know, love. And that's where this gets interesting. Fast forward to 2023. It's a different world. We can drive or fly just about anywhere to meet someone. And you don't have to go to the local coffee shop to meet someone. You can just open up an app and find a match from a pool of millions. So I would guess the four-block radius has gotten a lot bigger. It's safe to assume, although that particular study hasn't been repeated. What we do know is that most Americans still want to settle down close to where they were raised. According to census data, 60% of people end up within 10 miles of their hometown. 80% are within 100 miles. That makes it sound like not a lot has changed. But at least one thing has, our standards. Okay, so the question that you asked me at the beginning of this segment. Yes. In 1932, maybe you had an idea of your dream partner, but if they didn't live within that 20-block radius, the odds of finding them were pretty low. So people settled. But researchers are seeing a shift. Not only do we set high standards for our partners, but because the world is our oyster, we are less likely to settle for someone just because they live nearby. So to sum it up, though the data makes it seem like we aren't straying too far from home today, the partners we choose are more likely to live further away than a century ago. Mm, I'll be honest, a long-distance relationship sounds like a lot of work. That is definitely a factor. It's not easy living apart. But if someone feels like there's a partner shortage in their town, they're more likely than ever to broaden their search. In other words, standards went over geography. That is especially true for women who would rather travel than settle. Men are more likely to settle for someone below their standards just because they're nearby? Yes, but that's a story for another podcast. (laughs) Or we could just have a double long episode. Nick loves those. (laughs) Yeah. New research recently published in iScience has finally unraveled one of the great mysteries that has plagued humanity since the ancient Egyptians. They finally made contact with an alien civilization? That would be a much bigger story. I'm just saying. (laughs) They discovered another reason cats love catnip. Okay, actually, I'm really psyched for this one because my cats are obsessed with the stuff. 
Right? It, it actually is a pretty surprising find. Turns out catnip and silvervine, another plant that drives cats crazy, both contain chemical compounds that repel mosquitoes. Wait, okay. I always thought that catnip gave cats like a euphoric sort of feeling like, doesn't it make them high? Absolutely. Catnip and silvervine are two totally different species of plants with different chemical compounds, but both have similar effects on our little feline friends. A cat will chew up, shred, lick, bat, or even just roll around on leaves from either plant, which will almost immediately lead to a change in behavior. I mean, absolutely. That change in behavior is one of the funniest things to watch. It makes up a huge chunk of videos on YouTube and TikTok <laughs> and any social media platform. Yeah, it, it drives cats wild. There's meowing, rolling around, drooling, staring into space. It's honestly one of my favorite things. <laughs> Well, this new research shows that their attraction and reaction to these plants could have a huge benefit and helps to understand why they behave so strongly toward them. It all starts with compounds called iridoids, which cause euphoria in cats, but also repels mosquitoes. So cats are just applying bug spray? Kind of. The interesting thing is the iridoids are only fully released from catnip or silvervine if the leaves are shredded or torn. Huh. So the compound makes the cats crazy, which makes them shred the leaves, which releases more of the compounds? Yeah, and then they roll around in it, which coats their fur. Which keeps the mosquitoes away. In fact, the research led by grad student Reiko Oenoyama showed the cats preferred the leaves that had been shredded to those that were intact. One of the more fascinating things about this study is the implication that felines evolved a natural obsession with a plant that actually defended them from diseases carried by mosquitoes. So if we shred up and roll around in catnip leaves, will the mosquitoes leave us alone? Honestly, yeah. In fact, researchers think this discovery will help us develop new, more effective, and safer insect repellents for human use. Although they are quick to say that if you are allergic to cats, you probably shouldn't use iridoids as repellents. Yeah, that would be a catastrophe. Okay. Haha. <laughs> now we just need to do some research on why they love yarn so much. I'm going to go give my cat some catnip. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. A chemical called TCE has been used for everything from degreasing metal to decaffeinating coffee to dry cleaning and has now been linked to Parkinson's disease. A new study cites many examples of heavy exposure to TCE leading to the development of the disease decades later. Where we live factors into who we choose as our partners, although not as much as it used to. Researchers have found that people, especially women, are more likely to travel away from home to find a partner that meets or exceeds their standards, especially if they think those standards can't be met close to home. Cat's love for catnip could have evolved as a defense against mosquitoes. Researchers in Japan found that when cats shred and roll around in catnip or silvervine, they not only experience cat euphoria, they also release a potent mosquito repellent that protects them from insect-borne diseases. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery executive producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Wheelhouse DNA executive producer is Cassie Berman. This show is hosted by Callie Gade and Nate Bonham. Our producer is Kiara Noni, and our associate producer is Kimaya Floyd. Writing is done by Jed Bookout and Sam Osterhout. Our researcher is Marla Friedson. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Nate Bonham. And I'm Callie Gade. We'll see you next week. Did you know there's a lost city in the jungles of Cambodia? On Expedition Unknown, Josh Gates takes you around the world as he investigates some of humanity's greatest feats and most iconic legends, like the lost city of the Khmer Empire. As a member of the Explorers Club and with a degree in archaeology, 
Josh Gates is an all-out adventurer. From jumping out of planes to deep sea diving, there isn't a mystery he'll shy away from. Listen to Expedition Unknown wherever you get your podcasts.